If you were to ask Bianca, my wife, if you were to ask her, what is your favorite movie? Not your favorite kids movie, not your favorite cartoon, your favorite movie that has ever been put upon the screen. What is the movie that every time you are flipping the channels and you see it's playing, you stop and watch it to its conclusion? What movie have you seen more than 20 times? She has one answer, The Incredibles. Uh, Pixar's probably one of their best movies, and it's a movie about a, a, a family of, of superheroes, and I think she probably likes it so much because uh, her family is super, and it's all about uh, us coming together. I like it because it is about a middle-aged superhero who's gotten fat. Um, I don't know why that would appeal to me, but it does. So, uh, but there's this great scene in there, if you haven't seen it. Uh, there's uh, the, the female uh, character voiced by Holly Hunter. She, uh, she begins to suspect that her husband, Mr. Incredible, is having an affair. And uh, he's driving a new car, and he's got a, had a blonde hair on his uh, coat one day, and he's doing all these secretive things. He's not supposed to be fighting crime anymore. The government, for some reason, has shut down the superheroes. And so he's been, she thinks he might be, you know, he, he is actually secretly going out and fighting crime, but she thinks it's more than that. And so she finds out that he has been to see their personal designer, uh, their uh, fashion expert, E, Edna. And so she goes to see Edna to find out if he kno she knows where Mr. Incredible is. And of course she does because she's already made a new costume, a new uh, super suit for Mr. Incredible. And she, he's already made, she's made one for her too. And, and, they, and once she realizes that this secret life has been going on behind her back, Mrs. Incredible begins to cry, and she just, she, she just breaks down, and she says, what, what can I do? What can I do? I'm losing my husband. What can I do? And, and Edna, who's about this tall, jumps up on the table and walks over to her and begins to slap her with a newspaper. You can remind him you are a Lester girl. You are a superhero. You are no weakling sitting here weeping, unable to do anything. And she beats her about the head and she says, show him who you are. Um, I bring that up because the, the Peter, Peter in the book of Second Peter, kind of comes to us. And if we were to able to bring him to this point in history, he would say, I know the last two years have been bad. They've been hard. Uh, that happens throughout the centuries. Every now and then, there's a couple of hard years. And while it's healthy to mourn, and it's healthy to, to recognize the, the sadness in the world and respond to that, there is a point when you cross the line between mourning and self-pity. I don't know where that line is, but I usually know when I've crossed it. Actually, I usually know about six weeks after I've crossed it. Um... And I think we as a culture are probably, well, if we look way behind us, get out some binoculars and look real close, I think we'll see that line. It's, it's back there. And I think we need Peter to come to us and slap us a couple times in the face and say, you are God's children. You are Christ in you. 
You have everything you need. You don't have to become anything you're not. He's not telling us, become a superhero. He's saying, be what you are. Be what you are. God has put the DNA in you. And he's, he's asking this, or I'm asking you, basically, uh, to make a, a resolution. I think we've, we've lost so much hope that we don't even make resolutions anymore. I didn't hear a single person talking about New Year's resolutions. Let's, and I think he, he, I'm asking you to make a resolution to grow in grace this year. To grow in grace by remembering and by being what you already are. Uh, with that in mind, please stand as we read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. What can we do? You can be who you are. Remember who you are. What, is, what does Peter do? He starts out very, at the very beginning saying that. He's obviously wanting to stir these people up to good works, to growth, to development of their character. But he doesn't begin by scolding them or anything like that. He begins by saying, don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember? You are partakers in the divine nature. Park on that for a second. You are partakers, not you need to become partakers, not one day you will be glorified and then become a partaker. You are, present tense, right now, partakers of the divine nature. What, what does that mean? Well, up till now, up till faith, you were partakers of human nature, right? And you still are a little bit. And that's where you get your appearance. That's where I got this chin and these spindly legs. And my kids got this chin, and mo no, they didn't get spindly legs. Um, it, it's where you get your DNA, right? And it, but you get more than that. You get your personality. You get your sense of humor. You get your character. 
really, a lot of it from birth, right? It's just handed down to you. And most importantly, for, for this purpose at least, you get your sin nature. And, and the sin nature is a desire for independence, a desire to live our life independently of God or each other, a desire just to do what you want to do and define who you are by yourself. That's all part of our sin nature. And when, then when we believe in Christ, when we receive him, as John 1 says, everyone who receives him becomes a child of God, is born again. And when you're born again, you receive a new nature. You now have, you, you have the divine nature. It is within you. That's already what you are. And so it's very important that you see this. Peter isn't saying you need to be good or you won't be a Christian and you won't get to go to heaven. He's saying you need to be what you are. You already are. You need to develop. And the first thing for us really to remember is um, we just need to remember who we are. We need to be told. I'm afraid some of us haven't been told. We in the, the Presbyterian tradition, for all six of you who grew up Presbyterian, uh, we're really good at stressing sin. We're, we're, we're the best at that. If there's ever like an ecumenical conference where they call in different preachers to preach on different things, Presbyterians always preach on sin. That's our, that's our wheelhouse. And sin is very real and it's part of our life and you've heard me talk about it enough. We're not real good at talking about the new creation. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a new creation. You are. Not become one. Not, you better get out there and make yourself a new creation. You can't do that. But you are a new creation. It's like that great scene in, uh, in Harry Potter when Harry has been getting all these mysterious letters and his family is just taking him out to the most isolated place in the world, an island with only one house in it, to be safe from these letters. And they hear a knock on the door. And Hagrid, the, the man giant, comes in and he greets Harry and Harry's like, what in the, what is happening? Who are you? And, and Hagrid finds out that Harry, his whole life has been kept secret from who he is and he, he yells at the, at the family, you haven't even told him who he is? Harry, you're a wizard, Harry. Uh, if you've never been told this, I want you to hear it from me. You are Christ in you. You are, a divine, you are a partaker of the divine nature. In you is everything you need for life and godliness. There is nothing about you that should be beaten down. You don't have to earn God's approval by becoming more godly. God is on your side massaging you to bring it out. And, and we have to bring it out. And we bring it out through training and this is the worst one, time, endurance. I mean, that's the way it is with nature. It's going to be that way with the spiritual nature as well, right? If we, could, if we wanted to create a super athlete, um, we could take, you know, LeBron James and, and Jackie Joyner Kersey or Flojo or whoever and put them together and, and have the, the most 
perfect DNA baby in the history of the world. And then we could take this newborn baby and throw it out on the basketball court. He's not going to dunk a single time. He might dribble. Get it? Stupid. Uh, he's not going to do anything, right? Because he's a baby. And you've got to train him up. I mean, Harry already was a, a wizard, but he had to go to Hogwarts to learn how to be a wizard, to learn how to do the things that wizards do. In the same way, you already have the divine nature. I'm not asking you to do something unnatural to you. Peter is asking us to be what we are and to bring that out. He says, supplement your faith. He says, supplement your faith with, with character. He, he, you know, and that's, again, it, whenever we, we talk about that kind of thing, people get nervous. And I, I promise you, nobody you know believes more in salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. Nobody. Because all my eggs are in that basket. I mean, if, if salvation is not by grace alone, I am in deep trouble. I am aware of the problem. So I, nobody believes that more than me. But, but faith and grace never come alone. They always bring fruit with them. That's how we, we know that it's there. I mean, if, if we wanted to know if these sockets had real electricity in them, then the only way to do that that I know of, I guess you could stick your finger in there, but don't do that. You plug it into something. If, if, I, if I found you on the floor of your apartment or your house, and I wondered, like, is he dead? I wouldn't go through your file cabinet looking for your birth certificate. I would take your pulse. I would look for the fruit of being alive. If God's grace is really in you, we're going to see it. The Bible's clear about that. James says, you say you were saved by your faith and not works. That's great. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. It's, it's not, there's no electricity there. So what does Peter say? What are, what are the things that we should add to our faith? How do we supplement our faith? We supplement it first, he says, by adding to our faith virtue, character integrity. It's hard to define. All good things are, but you know when you see it. You know people already who've been walking with the Lord for decades, and you just want to be like them. And, and when they tell you that they love you, you believe them. And when they ask you how you're doing, they, they actually care, and you believe this person actually wants to know how I'm doing. And when they say, I'll pray for you, you're thinking, this person actually prays for me. And, and it takes a long time to become that. But, but it's not going to just happen. You have to grow into it. And, and we grow into it. I, I love the way um, a guy named Nate Larkin, the way he describes integrity and how to grow in integrity, is he says, by having fierce honesty about our sin and humble faith on the grace of God fiercely honest that we might get daily a scrubbing of our sin and a new dose of the grace of God that's how we become how, who we are that's how we bring out the divine nature he says add to the virtue knowledge I like that I spent a lot of my life adding that knowledge right 
And he's clearly talking about theology and knowledge of the Bible, right? Except 1 Corinthians 8 says this. Every, every time we had somebody come preach in the chapel, they would always, at least three times a semester, preach on this text. Knowledge puffs up, but love sanctifies. He's not just talking about knowledge of theology. Knowledge is helpful. He's talking about knowledge of the Lord. Just like he says in verse uh, 3 here, right? Through the knowledge of him who called us, knowing him, getting to know him. And you do need to grow. You need to grow because if you, are, if you stay a, a baby Christian, then you're going to have struggles through your life that honestly you need to get beyond. And the only way to get beyond is to know him. Like, I know him. Like, elf, right? Santa, I know him. Uh, you need to know because Satan's going to be saying things to you. You're going to plan a, an outdoor wedding, and it's going to rain, and you're going to think, God, why did you make it rain? And you're going to get mad at him. Why don't you care about me? But if you know him, you, you know that can't be the truth. It can't be that. I, I don't know why he does what he does, but I know it can't be because he doesn't love me. He's given his son for me. He loves me so much. And therefore, whatever else he gives me with him has to be for my good. He loves me. But if you never grow, you never get to that point. Uh, an immature Christian who doesn't know the Lord, you're tempted to evaluate God's attitude by what's going on in your life. You're tempted to say, on good days, you know, what does Maria say in The Sound of Music? She's so wonderfully in love. Someday I must have done something right. God's proud of me, and he's given me the dreams of my heart. And then when you have bad days, you think, God must be angry with me. What did I do wrong? But if you're a full-grown Christian, if you know him, and you know it can't be that. You know it can't be that. Because he doesn't act that way. Add to your virtue, knowledge. Add to your knowledge, self-control. Ah, come on. Self-control, it's important when it's in all these lists. And uh, N.T. Wright says it's because self-control is the only virtue that can't be faked on a sunny day. <laughs> you know? Sunny, sun comes out, and all of a sudden we got all the grace in the world, right? And we're filled with love and joy and patience and peace. Self-control is a tough one. But he says add, add to it. He doesn't say add willpower. Willpower and self-control are two different things. Willpower is the ability to put a box of cookies right in front of you all day long and never eat one. That's willpower. Self-control is the ability to know that I don't need cookies, and so you throw them away. It, it, the, the ability to make wise decisions to keep you away from temptation. That's self-control. And it is a, a, a work of the Spirit. We add to our faith virtue. We add to our, our virtue knowledge. We add to our knowledge self-control. We add to our self-control endurance. I don't care what your DNA is, it's going to take 20 years for you to grow from a baby to an NBA basketball player. 
right? 19 years. There's no way to hurry that. There is no way for you to hurry. I'll never forget listening to an African-American preacher from Philadelphia. He was asked this question, like, how did you learn these lessons? And he said, I just got old. There's no shortcut. <laughs> I wish there were. The only way to get old is to get old. There's, there's no shortcut. There's really not. Endurance. It's, it's powerful. But it takes a long time. And we hate taking a long time. Come on. I got a new iPhone last month because my old iPhone was taking like three seconds to load web pages. I ain't got time to wait three seconds. Three seconds? To find out what's going on in Europe? You're making me wait three seconds? Come on. He's going to space and back. You don't get sanctification in three seconds. You just don't. But it's more powerful than that. And if you understand this role of endurance, which always seems to go, it, by definition, goes longer than you want to. I love the way uh, the King James translates this word. It doesn't say endurance. He says um, long-suffering. That's kind of an easy exegesis, isn't it? Long-suffering means you suffer long. And so if it doesn't even feel long yet, you're not even in salt long-suffering yet. Uh, but long, long has great power in it. And you've heard me use this illustration before, but which is more powerful, a slab of concrete or an acorn? It's obvious. It's the acorn. But only if you're willing to be very, very patient. Like if you go out there and try to beat up our sidewalk with acorns, and you're throwing the acorns down as hard as you can. And what are you trying to do? I'm trying to jackhammer the sidewalk with acorns. You will never succeed, and we're going to have to take you off. Uh, you'll never break concrete with acorns unless, what? You plant it, and you leave it there for years and years. And what's going to happen? That plant is going to grow roots so deep that they just lift the sidewalk right up and you have to call somebody to come get it. And, and that acorn, one acorn, is going to produce more acorns, which are going to produce more trees, which will produce more acorns. That acorn has enough life in it to, under the right conditions, cover the world in wood if you're willing to wait. If you're willing to wait endurance add to your virtue knowledge add to your knowledge self-control add to your self-control endurance and add to your endurance godliness and brotherly affection godliness and brotherly affection be like god and one of the what do we know most about god god is love and you can't practice the the righteous character of a christian you can't practice any of these things by yourself you have to be in community to have brotherly affection you have to be in community to have love otherwise it's narcissism you have to have be in community and i love this phrase brotherly affection maybe it's because i had four boys i don't know but i love the phrase brotherly affection you know what brothers are brothers are the guys you you know shared your bedroom with shared a bed with you know, the ones that you, you know them by smell. You know all their stories. You know all their dreams and aspirations and fears and everything there is because you've 
stinking been with them for your whole life. You've got this deep sense of, of unity. And affection. Affection is an intentional word. It's not, uh, it's not eros. It's not passionate love. It's not uh, agape. It's not charitable love. It's, it's brotherly love. Brotherly love. It's, it's the love of friendship. And friendship is very important in this church. We've made it uh, one of our two pillars. We, we want you, that if you've been in this church any time at all, we want you to be able to say, I go to River Oaks because my friends are there. That's, that's our desire for you. That's what we want for you. And, and, and you really, honestly, I don't think, the reason why we believe that, or the reason why we believe that, that sanctification, that growth in grace, that development of character, those are all the same words. Why do we believe that happens in, in fellowship, or why is it important to be in fellowship? Because a book can never look at you and say, I'm talking about you. You have a problem with that. Not even the Bible can do that. Because we have the perfect shield. You know that, right? The perfect judo move. You read the Bible and you read some just unbelievably convicting passage. And we close it and we go, I know some people who really need to hear that. But a friend, somebody you love enough to trust them, they can look at you and say, your sorrow has turned into self-pity. And it's time to remember who you are. You need somebody else in your life who has the permission to tell you that. The most important conversation I've ever had in my life was about six words long. I was, I was deep in self-pity mode. Even I knew that. And um, I'd been turned down for about 10 jobs in 12 months. And I just couldn't believe why anybody would turn us down. I'll be honest. It, it was shocking to me. It really was, actually. And, um, and I was driving around Atlanta and at a staff training moment with, with three of my oldest friends. And I said, guys, I'm going to be honest. I feel like I'm the guy at the table with barbecue sauce hanging off his chin. And none of, nobody loves me enough to tell me it's there. And Fritz Games, who was sitting right here, he spoke up and he said, Ricky, you have a chip on your shoulder that is so big, anytime anyone gets anywhere around you, it falls off. He was right. And nothing else got said for a long time still until Kevin, who hates awkward silences, said, oh, what's for dinner? <laughs> um, and I went to bed that night praying to Jesus, and all I was able to pray was, you didn't die for me to leave me like this. You didn't die for me to leave me like this. Fellowship. That mirror that tells you what no one else will tell you. Brotherly affection. And as we add these things to ourselves, we become. And the, and the reward of becoming, becoming this divine nature, this, this beautiful image of Christ that we've been recreated and saved to be, the, the beauty of that is that we get to see ourselves glorified one day. We get to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. And, and I, he, he gives us two kind of illustrations here. He says, one way you find out who you are is by finding out who you're not. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, and he's forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. 
I think one of the ways he's saying, things he's saying there is <laughs> when it comes to living a, the life of a sinner, someone who doesn't know Christ, you're really bad at it. You've forgotten that that's not you. It's fake. And you're going to feel guilty for things that unbelievers, they don't feel guilty about. You're just going to be bad at this. So don't try it. I told one of my sons that one time. I said, God loves you so much, he's never going to let you get away with anything. So you might as well just tell me. You might as well just tell me. And it, I was right. And, uh, and God says to you, that's not you. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the price I paid for you? Have you forgotten how much I love you? Have you forgotten that I gave my son for you? Don't forget who you are. And finally, he says, you get to see it. As you enter the kingdom of glory, as you enter into your glory, the, the thing that happens to us at the resurrection is that all this beautiful thing, this beautiful character on the inside of us, it becomes the outside. And everyone can see it. And, and we live that way forever. There's, uh, there's a reason why I love this text so much. And uh, that reason is because it was the life text for a woman who was very important to me. Her name was Libba Dean. Libba Dean uh, lived in Cleveland, Mississippi. And that was where I first had my first ministry. And she, uh, she had terrible news delivered to her by the doctors when she was a young woman. She was the principal of the Christian school. She had a tremendous ministry. Every child in that school was her son and daughter. She loved them, and they loved her. And she was leading tons of people to Christ. And she was excited about her job and her future. And she was diagnosed with a, a degenerative form of, of uh, arthritis that literally caused her to wither away from the extremities. By the time she died, her arms were about this long, and they, they looked like this. And her legs looked the same way. She was about this big. And she would always sit right back there in church. And every Sunday, you'd go by and you'd talk to her, and she would ask how she could pray for you. She had sad days. I'm not trying to make her sound perfect, but generally speaking, the one time of the week she got to go out of the hospital, she was asking, how about you? And you knew she cared. She spent the last 15 years of her life in long-term care in the hospital, waiting to be dressed and taken to the restroom and fed. And when she found out, when she got that diagnosis, she asked her pastor, Wilson Benton, she said, why would God do this to me? Why is he taking away my ministry? He said, I don't know, Leva. He read this passage to her, and he says, this passage guarantees that if you will work on your character, you will be fruitful and effective in the ministry. And she made that her passion. And when she died, I went to her funeral, and the funeral was, uh, the church, the entire church, bigger than this, was, in, was filled, and it was filled with strangers. And I later found out that basically every member of the hospital staff was there. And I, and I found out that one of the nurses who took care of her the last year came to my pastor and said, can you please tell me about the Jesus that Libadine knew? And she was converted that week. But that's not where Libidine's ministry ended. You see, it's being extended today. And everybody you tell this story to, and it will be fruitful. 
forever. And I cannot wait to see Libidine walk through heaven. I think uh, C.S. Lewis described somebody like her. He, in, in The Great Divorce, he says he sees uh, this beautiful woman walk by, and, and he says that her face, he says, I cannot remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, it must have been the, the visible shadow of her courtesy and joy which produces in my memory the illusion of great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. Isn't that beautiful image? The grass is happy that she's walking on it. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread. And I've forgotten, well, I partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide, not at all, said he. This is someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. She lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be a, well, a person of particular importance. Ah, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are quite two different things. As we become, one day we'll get to see it. And we'll live for eternity as what we've become. The divine nature of Christ is in you. It's in you. Be who you are. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we confess that oftentimes we just don't feel like who we are. We don't feel like new creations. We don't act like new creations. We don't believe we are new creations. Father, I ask that you would give us the grace to believe that we are who you've made us, very, the very image of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.